0: Good evening, everyone. It's a real privilege to be here with all of you this week. It really touches me, opens my heart. Thank you. And so far, during the retreat, my colleagues have been brilliantly deconstructing your sense of self. I don't know if you remember reading on the registration form it said retreat can cause severe loss of self. (laughs) Tonight I want to add my voice to the discussion of identity. And I think the entire teaching of the Buddha can be summed up in a knock-knock joke. You laugh, but the disciples come to the master and they say, and the master answers with the number one spiritual question, who's there? And if you don't get the joke, you have to be reborn over and over and over again until you do get it. The question of identity is very important really Because how we come to see ourselves in the scheme of things, determines how we feel about our lives and how we treat each other, treat the environment. And as the Buddha said, true happiness can only be found by eliminating the false conceit of I or self. Unfortunately, we are all born with a case of mistaken identity. And we go through most of our lives believing we are in here and the world's out there. Rarely do we recognize and acknowledge and feel that the world's actually in here and the world is moving through us and the world is actually moving us. The Buddha's great breakthrough was to see through the membrane of self and realize that we co-arise with all things. He gave us a new identity and a way to experience that new identity. He gave us a new story about ourselves. And in recent centuries, modern science has been corroborating what the Buddha taught and also giving us a new story about who we are. And this new story says we are intertwined with all and everything. In physics, they call it entanglement. You know, I move my finger and the whole universe is involved. And the new story is telling us that we are related to all the life that's ever lived. We are cell brothers and cell sisters. And the story of evolution is everybody's biography. So we're starting to tell ourselves a new story. We're we're getting an upgrade of our mythology, if you will. And this evening I'd like to share a few episodes of that new story with you. Partly to continue to investigate identity and who we are. By the way, I think the question should not be who am I? It should be who are we? Partly to continue that investigation, but also to arouse your awe and your wonder at this existence that we share and this new story we are telling about ourselves. So I'll start at the very beginning. As Carl Sagan said, if you want to make apple pie from scratch, first you have to make the universe. So in the beginning, the scientists say there was nothing, and it was good. (laughs) Nothing can ever be wrong with nothing. In the beginning, they say there wasn't any space, no place to put anything. In the beginning, there wasn't any time. Nothing ever got done. Nobody cared. (laughs) And then suddenly, there was a big bang. But some people wondered, if there had been nothing, what banged? <laughs> Good question, said the scientists. And they went back and they reconfigured a bunch of stuff and they finally came out and said there was something after all, a dot, a singularity, a point smaller than an atom. And so it came to pass, saith the scientists. This is a new creation myth, we want to put a little pomp in it. <laughs> so it came to pass, saith the scientists, that dot exploded in a big bang. It happened 13.7 billion years ago today. <laughs> Happy birthday to you two. 13.7 billion years ago today that dot exploded and out of that explosion came the elementary forces and the elementary particles and they began mixing and morphing eventually creating billions of galaxies full of billions of suns and stars and the earth and the mountains and the forests, the deserts. The, people, the animals, the Zafu, Zabuton, everything you could know of and name, and it all came out of the explosion of a tiny dot smaller than an atom. Now isn't that more plausible than the idea of a God who created everything in six days? <laughs> Take your pick. Which is more fantastic? Oh, this is an image I love. A trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang, the universe was six feet in diameter. Now, that's a universe you can get your mind around, you know? (laughs) Take it home, put it in the corner. Now, uh, somebody estimates the universe to be 10 billion trillion cubic light years large. Approximately. (laughs) And where are we? In that vastness. Well, we're riding on this little rock, spinning through space. Actually, we're hurling through space together on this little rock, spinning around the Earth's axis at about 1,000 miles an hour, spinning in our orbit around the sun at 66,000 miles an hour, and you don't even have to hold on. What a ride. Can you feel the space wind on your face? (laughs) Where are we? Well, we're on a little water planet circling a small to moderate sized star, we call the sun, which is located on the edge of the Milky Way galaxy on a spur called the Orion Arm. The Milky Way is in a small uh, cluster of galaxies we call the local group, they call it something, something else on other galaxies. The local group is 10 million light years across and made up of 40 galaxies. The other large galaxy in our cluster is Andromeda, which is two and a half billion light years away and is twice as big as the Milky Way. In three billion years, Andromeda and the Milky Way will collide and pass through each other. And several billion years later, the black holes at the center of the two galaxies will combine creating a super black hole. And, as you probably know, that will suck. (laughs) (laughs) They're now finding planets all over our galaxy that look like they could support life, hundreds of them. The new Kepler Space Telescope is sending back pictures. And uh, considering there are 100 to 200 billion galaxies, it's very likely, very probable now that there's life all over the place out there. And I think that's really good news because it takes the pressure off of us. (laughs) We no longer have to carry the entire burden of meaning in the cosmos. It's not just about us, maybe. One of those planets uh, that they found is named Gliese 581 g. You know, astronomers. And um, it goes around its sun every 37 days. The years just go whizzing by. But Gliese 581 g is just a few dozen light years from the Earth. So if there are beings on that planet, Gliesers, I guess you'd call them, they are about to watch their first episode of I Love Lucy. And not in reruns. But this universe that we're in, it turns out, is really a trickster. For instance, the scientists say the universe is suffused with the gas helium. So that could mean my voice is actually an octave lower than it sounds to you right now. Maybe none of us have ever heard our true voices. And the scientists are now talking about how the universe is composed of 70% dark energy. That could explain a lot. And this dark energy is making the universe expand faster and faster. As if somebody was eager to get it over with. But this universe is a trickster in that we think there's a lot of stuff here, but there's hardly any stuff here at all because everything we perceive is made of atoms and atoms are 99.9999% empty space. You take the nucleus of an atom and blow it up trillions of times till it's the size of a pea, the electron going around that nucleus will be the size of a grain of sand and it'll be a half a mile away. There's hardly any matter to matter. So why don't we just fall right through the floor, right through the earth? It's all a magic act. And if your body's made of atoms, atoms are mostly empty space, what is holding your clothes on? Not only does the emperor have no clothes, the clothes hardly have any emperor. (laughs) We're like optical illusions to each other. As they say in Zen, form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. Of course, now they've broken the atom down into three minuscule subatomic particles, quarks, leptons, and gluons. I'm not quite sure how it works, but I think the gluons hold the quarks and the leptons together. Sounds right. But the the scientists say that's all there is in the universe is quarks, leptons, and gluons. So why does it look like there's so many different things? Strange, strange. I used to think I understood matter a little bit. Then the scientists started talking about antimatter. They say the universe is filled with antimatter. There's just a little more matter than there is antimatter. And every time a particle of matter meets a particle of antimatter, they annihilate each other. I suspect that the discovery of antimatter is proof that whoever created the universe in the first place was somewhat ambivalent. You know, particle of matter, there'll be so much trouble, particle of antimatter. Oh, but interesting. What is there to do? Matter, anti. But the discovery of antimatter raises important questions for us humans, because now we not only have to ask what's the matter, we have to ask what's the antimatter. <laughs> and of course, does it antimatter? <laughs> Maybe all of our questions will be answered someday by the theory of everything. That's what they're looking for. You know, the unified theory of everything, where. Everything is explained. The current version of it is the superstring theory, which says that everything in the universe is composed of these minuscule vibrating strings of energy. And to tell one thing from another, you just go check out the vibes, I guess, uh, something like that. We knew a few things in the 60s. Anyway, uh, the superstring theory also says there are seven more dimensions to reality that didn't unfold in our universe. Isn't that fascinating? Seven more dimensions to reality, and it's probably a good thing they didn't unfold because we can barely manage four <laughs> dimensions. Height, width, depth, and time. If there were seven more dimensions. Think of how much harder it would be to find your car keys or <laughs> keep your weight down. It just, you know, all these crevices to reality. Really hearing that about the the dimensions got me thinking about how we are locked into a particular box of of perceiving, you know, and what if width started slipping in on us? I don't know, just a thought. (laughs) But what scientists are discovering is what mystics have known for centuries, and that is that consciousness plays a major role in the creation of reality. Now, the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum physics says there is no reality in the absence of observation. There is no reality in the absence of observation. So I want to conduct a little scientific experiment here this evening, if you don't mind. Everybody, please, well, I guess look that way. That in all of us. Hazel? (laughs) Okay, that should mean the other side of the room has disappeared. No reality in the absence of observation. Maybe somebody was peeking. I don't know. Or it reassembled itself. A haiku, no mind, no matter. No matter, never mind. At least they found the Higgs boson, right? The Higgs particle. That's what gives substance to everything. The substance that gives substance to everything. That's why they call it the God particle. So should we start praying? Oh, thank you, Higgs. Oh, dear Higgs. You gave me my mass. I have a nice mass, Higgs. I would have thought the god particle would be named after some, you know, smart Jewish guy. Einstein or you know, Feynman, Higgs. I don't know. I just it sounds wrong. But Lord Higgs. I just It's a British nobleman. I can't figure it out. Anyway, you know what what the scientists are starting to say is that really, there's nothing here at all. Uh, You know, at the core of matter, they find energy. Everything is in process, there is no thingness. One physicist said, uh, matter is gravitationally trapped light. It's all a light show. I think it's the kind of ultimate irony that in a civilization so thoroughly devoted to materialism, our scientists would discover that matter may not even exist. We are illusions chasing illusions. Sokni Rinpoche once said, you Westerners, you, you have such a, you have a real problem. You think everything is so real, when actually it's effervescent. As the Buddha said, thus shall ye view the world, a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. Or as they say in Zen, and they always say something in Zen, (laughs) things are not as they seem, nor are they otherwise. So, what's going to happen to this space time universe that we're, we're hanging out in? The scientists expect it to expand forever into nothingness. They call that a cold death, the really big chill. However, if there's enough gravity in the universe, maybe the dark energy will serve that purpose. If there's enough gravity or gravitas perhaps in the universe then the expansion will slow down and the universe will begin contracting in a process the scientists call the big crunch great name for a candy bar and everything will eventually collapse back into that singularity again a tiny particle they call that a heat death so which do you prefer (laughs) heat death or cold death the universe is going to get you coming or going I like the idea of us all coming together again, uh, and then maybe there'll be another Big Bang and we'll all be reborn in a, a different space-time universe, one with less troubles, less friction. In the Asian wisdom traditions, their cosmology has always been so much bigger than ours. The Dalai Lama was once asked if they had the Big Bang in Tibetan Buddhist cosmology. He said, oh yeah, oh, mm, yes, mm. But bang, 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 many bangs, <laughs> many universes. The Hindus say their creator deity, Brahma, every time he blinks his eye, a universe is created. Every time he opens his eyes, a, a, another universe is created, and when he closes them, the universe is destroyed, and over and over again. You can actually try it for yourself, it works. <laughs> But here we are, big banging in this space-time universe. And we are big banging, yeah. You know what I'm talking about, yeah. Every step you take, every move you make, everything you do is gener- is the energy that does it is was energy generated by that primal explosion. Right now, inside your head. Millions of synapses are firing, we hope, (laughs) (laughs) but that's the energy of the Big Bang trying to comprehend the Big Bang. We're pieces of the universe wondering about itself. So let's uh, move on and reflect a bit on our existence itself, our human condition, our earthling condition, and how did we, how did we get here in, in this body, in this shape, with this kind of awareness and this level of complexity and competence? I bet everybody, almost everybody in this room will say they believe the story of evolution is true and that's how it happened. But I I don't think we really get it yet. The story is too new to have had time to seep into our psyche or the marrow of our being. We have to tell that story over and over again and sing it and dance it and bring it in so that it becomes alive in, it, in us. I think meditation is a perfect practice to do that. Because in meditation we get in touch with the roots of our being, our breath, and the elements, and the, the sun moving, uh, moving us with its fires, fueling us. And we get in touch with the instincts inside of us that we inherit from all the life that came before us. The karma of the past of life on this planet. We really can begin to explore our species self. Gain what I call evolutionary wisdom. But maybe we need some ceremonies and rituals around evolution. I I suggest to people, let's start chanting the table of basic elements. Hydrogen, Helium, Lithium, Beryllium, Boron, Carbon. It's mantra quality, don't you think? It's got a lot of ums and and As we did in the meta session a few days ago, you know, we are able to feel the elements within us. The hardness of our bones, the clay of earth actually, the fact that we are 70% liquid and mostly that liquid has the co- consistency of seawater. We sweat and Christ seawater. That we are made of all natural earth ingredients. We're certified organic. <laughs> and in meditation you can start to feel the structure of this brain and nervous system as it manifests itself in what we call mind. But in fact, right now, inside your skull is a fully functioning reptilian brain and a fully functioning mammalian brain and the new human brain or neocortex. And there's growing evidence and research to show that we use our new human brain mostly to make excuses for the behavior generated by the other two brains. That we're not so much rational animals as we are rationalizing animals. But if we see ourselves in this story of evolution, we are forgiven for all of our supposed faults and Sins, as we used to call them. Forgiven because we see that we are a baby species. There were 100 million generations of dinosaurs. 20, 30 million generations of mammals before humans came along. We've had maybe 20,000 generations of modern Homo sapiens. We just got these big brains. We don't know how to use them very well yet. They didn't come with an instruction manual. Humanity is a a baby. We're a baby species. Humans should not be tried as adults. (laughs) I think the most powerful spiritual message of the story of evolution is this. You are not your fault. If we see ourselves in this story, our family increases a million, million million-fold because we see we're related to everything that lives and ever has lived. Richard Dawkins gives a wonderful reflection on this. He says you have a grandfather and maybe you have a picture of your grandfather and maybe he even looks a little like you and then of course your grandfather had a grandfather and you have a picture of him, and maybe he still looks like he's part of your clan, and then you go back, grandfather, 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 about 4,000 great-great-great-grandfathers, and you have a picture of someone who your grandmother would never mate with, uh, you know, even if she was drunk and he had a, <laughs> a herd of camels with him. And then he had a grandfather, and you go back grandfather after grandfather, you go to 150 million grandfathers, great-grandfathers, and you would have a picture of a fish. Where did you think this body came from? How did it get this way? I don't, you know, I don't remember when I was born being offered a catalog of choices. You know, would you like eyes in the front and the back? Would you like to swim, fly, or walk as your primary means of locomotion? No, you just get the standard issue. We, you know, biped, vertebrate, mid-sized mammal, standing upright some of the time. The story of evolution is our collective biography Each of us starts life as a single cell, the shape of an egg. Once the egg is fertilized, the DNA guides it through the history of life on Earth. The single cell grows into a multi-celled sphere, into a tubular worm-like body. The embryo grows rudimentary fins, gills, webbed fingers and toes, features of reptiles and amphibians. As we cycle through the DNA, of ancient ancestors. Even after we start to grow arms and legs, we resemble the embryos of pigs and rabbits. It all happens in the warm sea of the womb, and at birth we repeat the exodus from the ocean and land in the world. The entire history of life in nine months. took life three billion years to figure that all out. The Buddha told us to ask this construction self, what is its source, its cause, its origin? Oh, yes. The, uh, it's always surprising after, you know, we kind of are familiar with the story of evolution to think that it took us so long to recognize that we had some relation to the other beings on the planet. If you look closely you'll see that almost all of us insects, fish, mammals, share the same floor plan. You know we have an elongated body with a sensing and eating device on one end, the plumbing in the middle, a waste pipe at the end, the other end, branching off from the elongated body are limbs of, the mobilizing limbs of fins or wings or arms and legs. Nature found a great design and just keeps using it over and over and over. The Buddha said, and I just thought this was, when I read it, I was so astounded by it. He said, this body is not mine or anyone else's, it has arisen due to causes and conditions. For now it should be felt. But I think, you know, the Buddha and Darwin would have gotten along famously. This body is not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes and conditions, uncountable numbers of causes and conditions if you think back to how it's been shaped. And how has it been shaped? It's been shaped by Mother Nature herself. The elements of nature, continents bump into each other and volcanoes erupt and And uh, you know, uh, ice ages come and go and life keeps having to change its shape and grow new ways of getting around, new camouflage and new methods of mobility and eating. So it's like nature is this artist carving different shapes out out of life and we're the art. But if we see ourselves in this story, our family increases a million, million million-fold because we're all related through this miracle molecule of DNA, made out of four chemical compounds, and depending on how they're arranged in these long strings of coded information, the DNA will contribute to the growth of a sequoia, or an ant, or a rose, or a human being. It's like this miracle stuff that separates life from non-life. deoxyribonucleic acid is much too cold and clinical a name for this magic stuff so I'm working on a new acronym whenever you see or hear the letters DNA think divine natural abundance divine natural abundance because it grows all the different forms of life as you may know 99.999% of your DNA is identical to the DNA of the person sitting next to you. Uh, The instructions for building and maintaining you are almost exactly the same as the instructions for building and maintaining me and the Dalai Lama and John Boehner and uh, (laughs) Oprah Winfrey and Lindsay Lohan. All of our individual differences are just a thin coat of over the basic human design. We share over 98% of our DNA with chimpanzees. We share nearly 90% of our DNA with mice. That's because most of the instructions for building and maintaining us are instructions for a basic mammal. It takes a lot of instructions. You know, you have to put a little brain in there and then a nervous system and a digestive system and a metabolic system and an immune system and instincts and senses and make it all work together. I mean, that's a a lot of information goes into those little mammals and into these big mammals. We share nearly 70% of our DNA with worms. Remember that the next time you're walking around on a rainy day and you see one struggling across the sidewalk, you know. They invented the spine, worms. Say it loud, I'm a vertebrate and I'm proud. We share nearly 50% of our DNA, ready? With yeast. So if we declare ourselves divine, is not the slime also divine? And if not, where do you draw the line? Does a snail get a soul? Mushroom? You see, the story of evolution doesn't deny our divinity, but it may deny our exclusive divinity. Besides, a good case could be made that the universe was made for bacteria. They were here first, and they are everywhere. There are more individual bacteria in your mouth right now than all the humans that have ever lived on planet Earth. They have houses and roads and churches and (laughs) a whole civilization between your cheeks. There's some speculation that the bacteria invented humans as a moving feedlot. (laughs) You know, you get room and board and a tour of the neighborhood. One of the secrets of the bacteria's success is that uh, they reproduce by just dividing. You don't have to take each other out to dinner first. (laughs) Now, I want to indulge a little fantasy here. A new story we're telling ourselves, you know, it doesn't start with Adam and Eve. It starts with a single-celled being, who I also think deserves a name. I am suggesting Uno, the first living being. And Uno came on the scene about 3.8 billion years ago, today. Um, and uh, let's give Uno a female identity, even though 3.8 billion years ago, gender had not yet been invented. So just imagine Uno floating around on the old ancient seas, just as happy as anyone could possibly be at the time. Uh, But as you might imagine, Uno eventually got lonely because there was no one to share this spectacular existence with. You know, wow, look at that sunset someone. So after a few million years of being really lonely, Uno decided on a plan and she pulled the little packet of chemicals in her body evenly and stretched them all around and then with great effort eventually split apart and the story of evolution had, had begun. And immediately, Uno started having twice as much fun. And Uno actually fell in love with Uno. Uno fell in love with herself. Now, that might sound like a profound case of narcissism, but there's a real spiritual message here we could consider all beings as literally a part of ourselves. Cell brothers and cell sisters. I think we should maybe make a grand statue of Uno and place a replica in all the major plazas and malls of the world. Wouldn't take much space. And every living being on earth can trace its ancestry back to UNO, the androgynous progenitor of all of us. Your mama was a germ. (laughs) But now we're really a different kind of animal. I hope you aren't offended by that label. It is how our eminent uh, eminent uh, biologists classify us. I know a lot of you are in denial. You know, you go to a cafe or a supermarket and there's a sign in the window, no animals allowed. People walk right through. <laughs> no animals here. I think we should be proud to be part of this beautiful kingdom of finely arrayed creatures. But we are a kind of different kind of animal. Our our ancestors came down from the trees about three or four million years ago. Among them was an ape woman who the scientists have named Lucy, the mother of us all. So we can presume the father of us all was Ricky. (laughs) We started hanging out on the ground more often Started using crude stone tools, eventually became known as Homo habilis, or handyman. And handyman began standing upright more often, maybe to fix a leaky roof or something. (laughs) And eventually, we started standing up all the time. We became what is now known as Homo erectus, or upright human. We're not talking morality here. Actually, soon after we stood upright, for obvious reasons, the loincloth was invented. (laughs) But standing up was a very important moment in our evolution because it's associated with a rapid increase in brain size. Now you'd think that standing up would cause our feet to swell instead, but this is the theory. Standing up left our hands free to work with tools Spears, axes, chopsticks, and we needed more brain connections to control the more precise movement of our hands and fingers. So this feedback loop was created, better hands, bigger brains, bigger brains, better hands. And also, standing up left our arms free to carry our stuff around. So eventually we started migrating out of Africa. Nobody knows exactly why we left but I suspect it was to look for Chinese food. <laughs> At the time, our brains were only half the size they are today, or else we would have figured out how to send out for Chinese food. <laughs> but we started wandering around the planet, our brains kept growing bigger and bigger, maybe because we got caught in an ice age or two, that's one theory. Had to think hard and fast how to stay warm. I Think it would have been a lot easier to just grow a heavier coat of fur, but it We didn't think of it at the time because our brains were too small. So we grew bigger brains and then learned how to make fire and then began sitting around that fire and telling stories about ourselves like this one that we're telling right here about evolution. Talking, boy. At first it was very simple. Our talking was yum, yuck, Uh uh-huh, (laughs) uh-uh. And then it became more sophisticated, you know, (laughs) let's get something to eat, Uh, my place or yours. (laughs) And eventually talking became so important to our survival as a species that a hugely disproportionate amount of the brain was devoted to the movement of the tongue and the lips. And I think that's why we like to kiss. All those nerve endings in the tongue and the lips. So in short, we talk, therefore we kiss. It's Just another theory. Anyway, our brains kept growing bigger and bigger and uh, eventually outgrew our heads. We had to get a whole new skull, rounded and dome-shaped here in front. Probably none of you are old enough to remember the old slope head model skull. You may have some relatives that still have that.
1: But <laughs> well, we grew this
0: new round-shaped skull in this new high-speed, fully loaded brain rare and to go. Sometimes I'm amazed that this is, this is my brain talking about its own origin, its own long history. This is my brain on evolution. So 40,000 years ago, our immediate ancestors appeared, the Cro-Magnon people. They began having elaborate burial rituals, making masks and jewelry, obviously having begun to ask the big questions like, where did we come from, where are we going, is there an afterlife? If not, let's invent one quick. Uh, having become what we now think of as homo, homo sapien sapien, twice wise, or twice knowing humans. Which I think means that we know that we know. But considering, you know, those of us who've done meditation, how difficult it is to know what you know, I think we'd be better off if we made it mean that we have to hear something at least twice before we know it. <laughs> we could live up to that. But I think, uh, I also have another theory that the Cro Magnon people were the first to display a sense of humor which they got by watching Neanderthals work with tools. (laughs) They were always dropping them and they couldn't figure out how to do the pliers thing, you know. 10,000 years ago, our really great grandparents began living in cities, doing agriculture, And the last 10,000 years have been a complete revolution in the life of this planet through the behavior of our species. Now we can fly off the earth out into space. We can see to the edges of the universe. We can see deep inside of matter. We know how things work in nature pretty well. Physics, biology, chemistry. In just the last couple hundred years, we've nearly doubled the average human lifespan. Now you get twice as long to be yourself. Just a few generations ago, most of our ancestors were peasants. Not long ago at all. And now most of us are called on to absorb many volumes of information in a lifetime and operate fairly sophisticated machinery It's a whole new world out there. And considering that, I think we're doing a pretty good job of being humans at this moment. The evolutionary biologists say we're working with brains designed for members of small tribes of hunter-gatherers. That would explain our addiction to shopping. (laughs) It's out there. You go get it. It may also help to explain our confusion and our, and our territorial ways. But if we see ourselves in this story, we can also find hope. First of all, you know, life on this planet survives just about everything that gets thrown at it. Volcanoes and ice ages and plagues and Henry Kissinger Uh, And also we find hope because we realize 2,500 years ago, which is just a blink of a blink of an eye in (coughs) biological time, we had the Axial Age, we had Socrates, we had Lao Tzu, we had the Buddha, a revolution in consciousness. And now our contemporaries virtually are Darwin and Freud and Jung and Einstein and Hubble. We're just now getting a whole new picture of who we are, a whole new story, of who we are in the universe. And the more we learn about ourselves and the world, the more amazing and awesome and wonderful the story becomes. Just think, less than a hundred years ago, we knew of one galaxy in the universe. The latest estimate is that there are 100 to 200 billion galaxies containing 30 to 50 billion trillion suns. Was that all made just for us? This will confuse them. <laughs> Who are we now in that vastness? And we are walking, wondrous, talking beings. You know, right now your body is creating 10 million new cells every minute, renewing and replacing you over and over. Right now your brain is processing an estimated 11 million bits of information a second. You hardly have to lift a finger We now know that life has gone from a single-celled being to a being with 100 trillion cells, that's you and me, and inside each of our 100 trillion cells is a little drop of seawater. It's very This is all very miniaturized, minuscule in size. A drop of seawater, and floating in that drop of seawater is a two-yard-long strand of DNA, DNA being one of the thinnest molecules known, just a couple atoms wide, wrapped millions of times around itself. Two yards of DNA in every one of your 100 trillion cells so if you stretched your DNA out end-to-end, end, it, would, it would go for 126 billion miles. The entire history of life carried inside each of your cells. The whole storehouse, all the lessons, all the things that worked and didn't work. Even the scientists are stunned by it all. E.O. Wilson, wherever he is, he says, trying to imagine, he says, and, and there's a lot of this kind of talk in scientific circles that, you know, that... It's hard to believe that this could have all fallen together kind of without something, something behind it all. I mean, scientists will never talk about that particularly, but they feel it. Uh, E.O. Wilson said, to imagine that a human could emerge by random chance in the universe is like trying to imagine a hurricane blowing through a junkyard and creating a 747 something's going on here but we don't know what it is but the beauty of this practice is that every time we come come inward and sit and feel this life and the breath we can connect with the mystery with the mystery itself, investigating ourselves and exploring ourselves, but not necessarily looking for an answer, who am I? I mean, I think more what we discover is who we are not in meditation. But I think one of the greatest gifts of Dharma for me has been to bring me closer and closer to the mystery itself. Sometimes when I get discouraged, I turn to science and I think, well, it's taken the universe 13.7 billion years to make me. That's some cause for self-esteem, huh? (laughs) What a project. So let's not blow it. Let's see if we can keep this show going for a while and See what happens, how, what happens to consciousness, how it evolves. For the sake of our species babies and our baby species, let's do what we can to live in better harmony with the other species of life and realize that we're part of the web So, as I often say at the end of my old radio show, learn to love it, learn to love yourself. If you love it, then you'll have the energy to help it heal. And if you don't like the news, go out and make some of your own. So, let's sit for a minute. (laughs) you <laughs> In the words of Hafiz, just to please Noah, in the words of Hafiz, O wondrous creatures, by what strange miracle do you so often not smile? We have a walking period. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.